had an experience this week that I'm guessing is one that many of you have experienced maybe this week, maybe last year, or maybe, maybe many years ago. It was tied to the part of this, the year that we're in, this season that we're in, and it involved my youngest daughter. You see, Monday night, we had a conversation, and it was kind of not really a conversation. It was more of a declaration as she literally bounced off the walls, and she recounted about 15 different countdowns that she had going in relation to Christmas. She's like, Dad, 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 do you, do you, do you, uh, do you know that it's four weeks from today is Christmas? Yes. Do you know that tomorrow is 27 days till Christmas? Well, yes. Do you, do you know that we only have three weeks of school until Christmas break? Do, do, you know that, do you know that it's only 17 days until my Christmas play? And do you, do you know how many people are coming? <laughs> she was so excited, right? Because she's counting down to something she knows is coming something she's anticipating. And, and we laugh and we kind of smile and we chuckle because we go, at one point we were all there, right? And some of us are trying to add days to the countdown because of all that we're trying to squeeze in this season, right? And in some ways, as I was thinking about it, as we step into Advent, the theme for us as a church this year in Advent is in wonder of his love. And the invitation is simply this, what would it look like for us to grow in our wonder and awe of who God is and what he's done. And I thought about this. When our kids jump up and down and they get all excited about the season and the things that are coming, oftentimes we push in and we go, hey, that's all good, but let's remember why we're doing those things. The reason for Christmas is not the gifts and not all the traditions. The reason is Jesus. And I thought about this. What if my excitement as a dad for Jesus is what encouraged my kids to know that Jesus was what we're excited about? Like, what if my wonder and awe, what if our collective wonder and awe at Christmas in the fact that Jesus, God, came was superseded the excitement that our kids have around the things around Christmas? And my invitation for me and for us this Christmas season is to grow in that wonder and awe. Say, God, would you? Not let me go through the motions and sear the stories and see the, sing the songs and go through the traditions just like every other year. But would you help me see fresh something that has been there the whole time? Would you help me understand a little bit more the truth that is absolutely wondrous at Christmas? Ed and Sheila led us in our lighting of the candle and starting off our Advent series and our season. Remember, Advent means waiting or arrival. It's anticipatory. We're anticipating. It's pointing us to something that's coming. Isn't it interesting? Danielle and I were talking this week, and she was pointing to some things she saw that was pointing to the fact that the church calendar doesn't start at Christmas. Why? The church calendar starts with Advent, which is actually four weeks before Christmas. Why would we not start the calendar with Christmas? Jesus came. I think there's something to that because when we see throughout Scripture is that there's a constant theme when it comes to God's story and his interaction with his people, and it's waiting. And so one of the reasons we're given, given the gift of Advent is it's not a day, it's a season, so that we can step back into the posture of waiting, which has been so common throughout history and is absolutely true in our world today. Advent is a gift and it's a season to allow us to anticipate and to step into the waiting. 
But as we've been talking the last couple weeks, the promises in Isaiah, waiting is something nobody wants to do, right? In our waiting, we ask a lot of questions. You could say in our waiting, we're prone not to live in wonder. We're prone to wonder. And questions like, like this, questions like, is God there? Will God come? Can God hear? Does God remember? What is God waiting for? I'm guessing in your world, you're probably asking in this room, I'm guessing all of us are asking one, if not most of these questions in different aspects of our life. God's people for years were asking these questions because God had been silent. Wondering if God remembered, wondering if God could hear, wondering if God was coming, wondering what God was waiting for. You see, in our waiting, I want to encourage us not to allow our wondering to replace our wonder. As we're going to see in our story this morning, wondering is not a bad thing. God encourages and invites us to wonder and to ask questions. But he doesn't want our questions and our wondering to replace our wonder. So over the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at a few characters we find in the Christmas story and how they encountered and experienced God in such a way that left them in wonder. And hopefully the invitation is not simply to watch them and observe them, but to see what, we have, what in their story can challenge us and connect with what's in our story. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 5. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. This is a, a time of year. It's interesting if you are familiar with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this time of year, I think I and a lot of us probably get surprised at what's not included in some of the Gospels. Like when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't all include the same thing. Interestingly, John and Mark don't even address the birth of Jesus. Only Luke and Matthew do, and Luke and Matthew do it in very different contexts. Matthew Starts with genealogy, then he points primarily to Joseph, and then he is the only one to include the wise men, where Luke goes before the birth of Jesus, starts with outside the characters of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and starts somewhere completely else. Luke is a Gentile Christian. He becomes really good friends with Paul. He travels with Paul, and he's heard the story. He's seen Mark has been written. Matthew has likely been written at the time of his gospel. And after traveling with Paul, interacting with all these people, he says, hey, I want to write an orderly account which is why Luke's gospel has a lot of details. Luke's gospel connects a lot of dots. Luke is a Gentile on the outside who's come to know Christ, who's then interacted with all these Jews, especially Paul. And he's saying, oh my goodness, would you see the connections between all that they were waiting for and believing and all that has actually happened? I want it to make sense for an outsider. And so we come to Luke chapter one, verse five, and it says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. In the division of Abaha, and they had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no children, no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. When we think of Christmas, we think of good cheer, we think of bright lights, but the reality is the Christmas story has a very dark backdrop. And Luke, writing probably 85, 90 AD, 90 years after Jesus has come, people who weren't living in these days, how does he start his gospel? He says, in the days of Herod. Who is Herod? 
Herod was not a good dude. Herod was a Jew. He was king. And the Romans didn't really typically allow people they conquered to keep their king, but they saw an opportunity in Herod because Herod was willing to do whatever they wanted him to do. Herod was a tyrant. Herod abused the people. He took advantage of the people. You could say the people were oppressed by occupied Rome and by Herod's rule. You don't think Herod's a good guy. All you have to do is fast forward the story. Remember that Herod is the guy who, when the wise men don't come back to report where they found Jesus, his response is to kill all of the babies in Bethlehem. Herod is a tyrant. And interestingly, when Luke says, in the days of Herod, it would immediately usher people back to a time and a season. Much like if I start a story and I say, in the days of Hitler, All of a sudden, you know the context. You know the season. You know the world events. You know what's happening. And maybe a little closer to home, if I start a story and I say, at the height of COVID, you immediately jump back to 2020 and all that was going on, the uncertainty, the fear, the unease, the debates, the tension, the controversy, you're ushered into that space. That's what Luke's doing here. He's saying, in the days of Herod, I could go on and list all of the things that were going on, but I think you know what I'm talking about. But in that darkness and in that backdrop, there's a light. Because it's not just the days of Herod politically. It would have been the days of Herod religiously. In the days of Herod, while all that bad stuff was going on, God wasn't speaking. It had been 400 years since God's last prophet. God had been silent. So politically, things are not good. Religiously, there's some doubt and questions, but there's a light. We're told that there's two people, both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Not perfect, but obedient and faithful. They're following God's last spoken word. Living rightly before God, But even for them, there was personal darkness. Verse 7 starts with a significant word. But. Verse 7 contrasts what has just been stated. It points to a reality and understanding in those days that children were a gift from God. And if a child was not given, then somebody was not living rightly. There was actually a sign of God's judgment. So we're contrasting the righteousness of Elizabeth and Zechariah with the appearance on the outside that they weren't living rightly or else God would have blessed them. Ed and Sheila pointed to the struggle with infertility. And I know there's many in this room who have walked that road. Which is why I love our God. Our God doesn't ignore those struggles and those hardships. He points to it. Again and again, he points to people who walk that road. People again and again who walk that road that God's saying, I see you. I hear you. Now, do I have an answer for why God doesn't answer that? Why God doesn't respond that way? Why God allows that to come? No. But I know that God invites us to trust. I think he invites us to ask questions. He invites us to lament. But he invites us to trust. And we see a couple who is struggling yet trusting. And in their trust, they're walking it out day by day, month by month, year by year. While God hasn't given them what they want, they are still faithful to who he's called them to be. So these three verses are crucial. 
There's national despair. There's national doubt about what God is doing and why he hasn't shown up. There's personal devotion. At the same time, there's personal desires going unfilled. I would imagine Zachariah and Elizabeth are doing a lot of wondering. I'm not sure if they're doing in a lot of wonder and awe. So this story is given to us. It's given to us a picture to hold up, saying this was true for them. What's true for you? Do you resonate with this story? How does this story challenge you and me as we step into Advent? Do you find yourself wondering what God is doing or are you in wonder and awe of who God is and what he has done? I'm guessing there's people in both camps and I'm guessing over the next week, you will flip-flop from one camp to the other in some regards. Our prayer is that over these next few weeks, God will grow in each of us a greater sense of wonder and awe at who he is and what he has done. And I think this story this morning is given to sow a seed of wonder and hope in your heart and mind. So keep going. Verse 8. While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour, at the hour of incense. In the middle of this dark season nationally and personally, Zechariah continues walking obediently. He's just... He's a priest. He's an old priest. He's been a priest for his entire life, which means devotion to God, faithfully following God, pointing other people to God. And what, the way it would work would be the, all the priests were divided into 24 groups. And every group would go to Jerusalem to serve at the temple two weeks out of the year, one week at a time. So in the course of a year, Zechariah would be in Jerusalem at the temple twice for a week. And while you're there, they would cast lots because there's a whole lot of duties and jobs to be done. But one of the greatest honors and privilege was to be one of the priests who would take the incense into the holy place. The holy place was in the temple right outside the Holy of Holies. And the priest would come carrying incense and offer the incense on the altar as a representative. As the incense would rise, it would represent the prayers of the people Asking God to deliver, asking God to forgive, asking God to save, asking God to redeem his people. So in the midst of all that we've talked about, all that Zechariah hasn't been given, all that he's, he and Elizabeth desire when it comes to a child, on top of that, as he faithfully serves God, can you imagine year after, twice a year for all of these years, say he's 60, say he's been a priest since he was 20, 40 years, 80 times he's come, they've cast lots and his number hasn't been picked. You ever been there with God? You're like, like life's crazy. And then it's like, you can't even catch the red light. You're like, God, is that coming? Would this be that hard? Would it be that hard just to wink? He's sitting there going, maybe this year, maybe this. Well, the year's come. His number's been chosen. He has the honor. This would have been the pinnacle of a priest. Once you got picked, you couldn't do it again. This is literally a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You do it once, and you're taken off the list. This is the place he's in as he steps into the holy, or the holy place with the incense. In verse 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Now, the holy place would have been a place Zechariah would have gone before. Like there were things the priests would do. They would set up the bread. They would set, light the candles, trim the wicks, do all the things that were, would happen in the holy place. So he'd been in there before. 
And I'm sure as he's talked about taking incense, he talked to other people, right? If you're going to do something significant, you're talking to the people who've done it before. Like what has happened? What do you do? What do you, where do you stand? What is, how does this work? I don't think part of anyone's rendition and anything he'd seen before accounted for an angel there, right? This is normal. This is normal. That is not normal. Wait a second. What is that? And I love Luke. Luke gives this direction. He gives this detail. Where is the angel standing? To the right. The right throughout scripture is a sign of God's blessing, not God's judgment. So the angel is not coming in judgment. He's coming in blessing, but it's an angel. And we know that anyone who encounters an angel doesn't exactly throw a party. They get scared. There's fear because it's clear they're an angel coming from somewhere that is not here. And I don't know why they've come. And I clearly know in an instant, they are on the good side and I am not worthy. So this angel shows up. This angel shows up and he says in verse 13, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. As with a lot of the angels that show up and interact with people in scripture, he starts with don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Now, when you read this verse, what prayer do you think the angel is referring to? Because I jump to your prayer for a kid, your prayer for a child. But as you look at this verse a little closely, and this, we don't know, there's different interpretations of this, but it makes a lot of sense to me. When you dive into this verse, you see the angel says, your prayer has been heard. And heard is actually in the aorist tense in Greek. It's a verb that points to a one-time event. Saying it's not like the years and years and years of prayer. It's the prayer that you just prayed. Zechariah would have just come into the holy place. He would have been offering the prayer on behalf of the people for God's salvation, God's deliverance, God's redemption. And the angel shows up and says, your prayer, which I believe is that prayer, has been heard. And I'm going to give you a son. Think about where Zechariah is in this moment. God hasn't spoken in 400 years years and an angel shows up and says I'm here to tell you God hears you and I'm here to tell you that what you've asked for for years and years and years is going to happen but he doesn't stop there angel goes on in verse 14 and the angel says this and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is not just a blessing for Zechariah. This blessing is for many, many people. This blessing is for you and for me. There's significance in the words that the angel uses here. Have you ever been, had a meeting with somebody? Maybe you're meeting someone for coffee or you're meeting somebody at a restaurant and you get there and maybe you get there um, early and you're waiting and then you're waiting and you're still waiting. This happened to me this week. I, I was 
had plans with somebody and it got changed and then, then it got back on and, and I'm sitting there thinking like, we're gonna meet and this is the time and great, I'll be there. And I was there early and I'm sitting there, I'm fine. And then as time gets closer to our meeting time, I'm like, still not here. And I go, wait a second, did I misunderstand? Or did they misunderstand? So what do you think I did? I went back to the text messages. And I'm looking at the text messages going, wait a second, what did I say? That, mm, that could have been misinterpreted. <laughs> you could have thought this location when I'm actually at this location. The angel shows up and the angel speaks words of blessing, which are great news for us. But these words are so much more. How often do you think the priests, how often do you think the people would have looked at the last time God spoke? They're going, God, where are you? God, what happens to your promises? Why are they not coming true? God, why are you not listening? Why are you not responding? Why are you not showing up? I think you go to the last time he spoke. Check this out. This is so amazing. The last words from God in Malachi, Malachi 4, 5 and 6, say, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a a decree of utter destruction. I don't think Zechariah missed it. Because if you go back to Luke, what does he say? I will turn, your kid is going to be part of turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Elijah's referenced in both places. The angel comes with a word from God and God says this, this is not a new story. I'm continuing the same story I've always been writing. Go back to the last time I spoke and you'll see I'm connecting the dots. I'm continuing my promise. It is still in effect. I am still coming. I am still acting. I will still save. But check out Zechariah's response. Verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, Zechariah is old. Zechariah is also smart. Did you notice how he described his wife? (laughs) He doesn't say, I'm old and so is my wife. He goes, I'm old, my wife is advanced in years. But he's going, how can this be? Like, it's it's impossible. But notice the two I am statements. Zachariah says, I am an old man. And here, for the first time, we find out the identity of the angel. What does the angel say? I'm Gabriel. And in case you didn't know, Gabriel goes on. He says, I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Gabriel wasn't like, you know what? I was in the neighborhood and I thought I would just kind of come and strike up a conversation. He's like, I was in the very presence of God, the God that you're coming right here, the God who you 
whose very presence, the Holy of Holies, is like right back there behind this curtain behind me. That God, that's the one I was hanging out with. And guess what? I didn't think, it, I didn't come up with the idea. He came up with the idea. All I am is a messenger. All I am is a servant. And guess what? I was sent from him to you. So I don't really care who you are. Do you know who I am? And do you know the authority with which the message I give you carries? How many times do we look at what God wants to do and we go, well, I am fill in the blank. I can do blank or I can't do blank. And God's going, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about who I am. And Gabriel is going, if you could see what I saw, guess what? Old guy and a wife advanced in years is no problem. And actually, Zechariah, you should know that's no problem because it hasn't been a problem in the past. This is a pattern for God. He shows up in impossible places and he actually gives, it's a pattern where he gives children to barren people. This isn't new. Why are you questioning? Verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. If you go back to the prayer being heard, if the prayer was in fact the prayer for the people and then he's giving him a son, I think Gabriel's saying, hey, I came to answer your prayer for the people to show that God is on the move and he's gonna answer his, fulfill his promises and the sign of that is you're gonna have a kid. Zachariah's response is to question the sign. He's then to ask, seemingly to ask, well, I need a sign to prove the sign. And so Gabriel goes, sure. God's been silent for 400. You're going to be silent for the next nine months. There's something here, and we're going to dive into this a little bit more next week when we look at Mary. But there's something here when it comes to our ability and freedom to ask questions. Because I think it'd be easy to look at this story and go, see, Zechariah was not allowed to ask a question. He should have just trusted. But if you look throughout scripture, we have different people that respond in different ways and ask different questions. God doesn't list, give us a list of things that you can and cannot do. He simply says, I want you to trust me. And God knows. Jesus was most amazed by what? By faith. He knows that faith isn't easy. He knows that we have things that we understand that basically the way that we've seen the world work. And when he chooses to work outside of how the world, we know the world to work, he knows that's going to hurt our head. That's going to make us struggle to compute how this is possible. I don't believe we have a God that says, don't ask a question. I don't think we have a God who says, don't wonder about what I'm doing. But I think we have a God who wants us to ask those questions with a heart of understanding and a desire to believe. Tim Keller, in his book, Hidden Christmas, I think talks about this so beautifully. He says this, what we see is that the Bible's view of doubt is wonderfully nuanced. In many circles, skepticism and doubt are considered an absolute unmitigated good. On the other hand, in a lot of conservative and traditional religious circles, any and all questioning or doubting is thought to be bad. I think the church in general has been a place that says questions and skepticism are not good. 
which is why out there you're praised for questioning everything, but in here you are chastised for questioning anything. I don't think that's reflective of the heart of our God. I think God invites questions. I think he wants us to wrestle. Guess what? If you look at the gospel and go, ah, that makes total sense. Like, I don't think you really know it. The gospel doesn't make sense. God would come. God would do everything needed on behalf of you and me to make a way back to him. That's why Christmas is so crazy. We're the only faith that has a God who acted on our behalf. That absolutely brings up questions that we need to ask so that we can grow in our wonder and awe of who he is and what he's done. Tim Keller goes on. He says, what you have in the Bible is neither view. There's a kind of doubt that is the sign of a closed mind. And there's a kind of doubt that is the sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers and some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. Is doubt bad? I don't think you can give a universal answer. The question is, what's the motivation for your doubt? Are you asking questions to understand or are you asking questions to defend yourself from the possibilities of something being beyond your comprehension? Here, for whatever reason, we don't know. The angel doesn't clarify exactly why his response is to silence Zechariah until John is born. But what we can see is that it's nuanced when it comes to how God views doubt. And this is not a judgment because this is what I love. You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Hey, it's not like he goes, well, you answered wrong. I'm going to move on to the next guy. He says, hey, over these next couple months, your faith is going to grow. Because God's desire is not for you to not ask questions. God's desire is for you to stand in wonder and awe of who he is and what he's done. I hope and desire that sanctuary would be a place where questions and doubts are welcomed and encouraged while faith is strengthened. I want this to be a place when you have a question and a doubt and a concern or something doesn't make sense, may this be a place where we can throw those out freely without fear of being looked down on or shamed. And then will we rally around each other to go, hey, for the things that we know, let's celebrate and stand on the things we know. For the things that we don't know, for the things that are unclear, for the things that require faith, let's encourage each other to grow in faith based on what we do know. Interesting to note, Zechariah walked into the holy place to approach a God who'd been silent for 400 years and he walked out silent. In verse 21, the people who were waiting for Zechariah, waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak and they realized uh, he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of services ended, he went to his home After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in these days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. I don't know what those nine, ten months were like, but can you imagine? Zachariah can't talk, but I'm thinking he's doing a lot of thinking. I would have loved to have seen how they're they're communicating, him and Elizabeth, about what he saw and what's coming. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, we'll see what happens. And then she gets pregnant. 
And in that moment, there's got to be this, oh my goodness. I didn't make that up. That, that prayer has been heard. That promise is coming true. Fast forward, skip over to verse 57. It says, now the time for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Now, the days before ultrasounds. Think about this. I just, you take for granted. Like, yeah, he said you're going to have a son. She's pregnant, but I'm guessing there's probably some of this question like, well, do you think it's going to be a boy? Right, and then he's born, and it's like, check off another validation of the promise being true. She gives birth to a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, AKA iPad, and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. He's born Everybody knows you're going to be named Zachariah because that's what you do. You name your kid after your father in that culture. You see, Zachariah means the Lord remembers. Imagine Zachariah living his entire life with a name that says the Lord remembers while his life was marked by wondering if God remembers. John, on the other hand, means the Lord is gracious. It's God saying, I do remember, and I don't just remember, I respond. I'm acting, I'm blessing, I'm giving you this gift. And even in the people, the people's response at the end of verse 63 is that they wondered, what in the world is going on? This doesn't make sense. This is amazing. We're celebrating, but this is strange. Like, why would you know you don't change the name? And then... Zechariah speaks, and we don't have what he says. We just have that he speaks. And as a result of him speaking, and fear came on all their neighbors. Fear means different things in our culture, and probably not the best translation there. But essentially, the fear of the Lord we see throughout Scripture simply means, biblically, to be in awe and wonder of his greatness and love. The people are in wonder. The people are in awe at God's greatness and his love because I'm sure it had been communicated I'm sure Zechariah had been saying writing and making notes and letting everybody know hey this is what happened this is the promise and then one step at a time people are going I don't know if I can believe you and then everything he said is coming true and now they're in awe why because what he said was going to happen has happened and not just happened but happened in a miraculous way so why does God give us the story of Zechariah why does Luke not just start with Jesus? Because I don't know about you, but man, there's such encouragement from this story, from these characters, from their experience, because guess what? They're not some distant people. They were human, just like you and me. 
God loves to show how he has shown up in the past, how he shatters the silence, how he breaks through the darkness so that our wonder at what he has done will fuel our faith in what he will do. I don't know if this helps you, but this is a progression that I see in this story. And the progression is this. We see waiting. We see wondering. We see walking. We see wonder. And ultimately, we see worship. We don't have time to go there today, but if you in your Bible, you can see the next section is Zechariah's song, his declaration, his worship of God in wonder for what he has done. And so for us this morning, I wonder what it would look like for us to recognize and validate our waiting for what it is, our wondering and questions for what they are, making sure our wondering doesn't lead us to wandering, but moves us to walking forward in what God has last spoken so that we live in wonder at what he has done. We have the Bible, we have the past, we have our own stories for a reason because in the moments of unknown, in the moments of questioning, God says, do you remember what I have done in the past because I don't change? You see, the story of Zechariah is for you and me. It left his neighbors, it left his community and all of God's ways back then. They were in wonder, but nothing in their world had actually changed. People were in wonder and then they went home and every, all the issues, all the problems, all the angst, all the fears, all the uncertainties were still there. What was different? They knew that God could be trusted. Going home today, you will walk back in, the, in your house and everything you left, all the worries, all the anxiety, all the issues are still gonna be there. I'm wondering if you walk in differently because you were reminded that God can be trusted. What changed was their belief that God was still God. His promises are still true. His plan is still in motion and his love is still active. We are not living in the days of Herod, but we are living in days that can feel dark. May this story leave us in wonder of our God. Let it do the same for us today as it did for those who knew Zechariah. Let's be in wonder this week as we sit in hope that comes through Jesus hope in the future because we're not waiting for a baby in a manger. We're waiting for a risen king. And we look to the past and say, if he came then, how much more can we trust and hope and anticipate and live in the truth and the reality that he's coming again? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your truth. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for Zachariah, for Elizabeth. God, in this space, I just want to lift up those who find themselves waiting, those who find themselves wondering. God, a lot of us would love to have an angel show up this week. But God, in the absence of that, we have your word here where an angel did show up. Truth was proclaimed. A God did come. So as we continue to journey through Advent, God, would we celebrate, would we rejoice in the fact that you came. You came to be with us and you are still with us. So God, would you comfort us? Would you encourage us? Would you challenge us? And God, would you grow in us a greater degree of wonder and awe as we follow you faithfully one step? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.